Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's case is a disturbing account of the brutal murder of two sex workers. Let me warn you now that it involves some very graphic detail, but I think the story is a really important one for a whole host of reasons that will become clear during today's show. And as soon as I heard about it, I wanted to share it with you. Before we start, I'd like to thank my new supporters on Patreon. That's Giovanni and Marinda Lynch. Thank you ever so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Today's story begins in July 1993, when Take That were number one in the UK charts with Prey, keeping four non-blondes with What's Up from the number one spot. And in the US, it was UB40 with I Can't Help Falling In Love With You from the film Sliver. In the news this month, at the 100th Wimbledon Tennis Tournament, Sam Pras beat Korea in the men's final, and Steffi Graf beat Jana Novotna. Wasn't it just so sad to hear of Jana's death recently at such a young age? This month also saw the last ever day of first-class cricket for legend Ian Beefy Botham. In the UK, our politicians were still obsessed by Europe. Nothing much changes, does it? And they narrowly avoided defeat in a vote of no confidence brought by the so-called Maastricht rebels. MI5 published a booklet, The Security Service, revealing publicly for the first time its activities, operations and duties, as well as the identity and photographs of Stella Remington, its Director General. Let's be fair, if you read it, it wasn't a great read. In 1993, David Smith, a 36-year-old lorry driver, was cleared of the murder of Medical Secretary Sarah Crump, who led a secret double life working for an escort agency at night. An Old Bailey jury took nearly four hours to find Smith, who lived with his parents in Hampton, West London, not guilty. After he walked free from court, the detective in charge of the case, D.I. McTigu, was certain that he was guilty, saying, The case is closed. We are not looking for anyone else. Privately, Detective Tigu was livid with the result, telling journalists that Smith was probably the most dangerous man she'd ever had anything to do with, adding that in her view, he was not a normal human being and he had the potential to be a serial killer. How did she reach this judgment? Well, unlike the jury at the Old Bailey, who weren't told about Smith's history of violence to women, D.I. McTigu had access to all the horrific details, and they don't make pleasant listening. In 1976, aged just 18, Smith had raped a woman in front of her two young children at knife point and was sent to prison for four years. In 1987, he attacked a woman in his unlicensed taxi, but she was really lucky to escape by kicking and smashing the car windscreen. For this, Smith was given just a two-year suspended sentence. Hard to believe, isn't it, that a violent convicted rapist tries to commit another rape and is just given a suspended sentence. A year later, Smith attacked again, this time a sex worker in a hotel room at Knife Point wearing surgical gloves due to his sexual fetish about all things surgical and especially surgical procedures. This fetish was thought to have originated from his experiences of a woman he'd once met at a nudist disco who had rejected him. He'd seen operation scars on her body 
and it's thought that this is where the sexual fetish had begun. Although Smith was charged for attacking the woman in the hotel room, his victim was too terrified to give evidence at court and the case was dropped. Then just days before the murder of Sarah Crump, Smith was acquitted of the murder of another sex worker. These attacks must have been particularly terrifying for these women due to the sheer size of Smith, who was nicknamed Honey Monster and Lurch by workmates because of his 6 foot 3 inches of height and his 18 stone bulk. He was a big unit. At the Sarah Crump murder trial, the court was told that Smith had suffered several rejections from women because of his size. For this reason, his preference was to use escort agencies, which was how he met Sarah, who was murdered at her home in Southall, West London, in August 1991. Smith admitted going to her home and paying her for sexual services, but he said he left her alive and well. He didn't actually give evidence during the trial. The court had heard terrible, gruesome details about how Sarah Crump's mutilated body was found on a blood-soaked bed at her flat. Marks on her badly decomposed body showed that she'd been dreadfully mutilated after being stabbed. As she lay dead or dying, the murderer, it was described as, chose to operate on her body, leaving shocking injuries. She'd been disemboweled and the murderer had severed her neck muscles and cut off her breasts. The prosecution said that the pattern of cuts was almost identical to Operation Scars on a Woman, identified only as Janet, who Smith had once known, but who had rejected him, the lady from the nudist disco. The judge at the trial told the jury that the coincidence between the scars and Sarah Crump's injuries will be for you to judge. But Smith's defence counsel, Ronald Thwaites QC, told the jury that the police were convinced that his client was a murderer and had set out to prove it at all costs. The defence said the police had suppressed evidence by failing to disclose unidentified fingerprints found on Sarah Crump's door handle and on a drawer and under her bed. None of Smith's fingerprints were ever found in the house. QC Thwaites really earned his money during this trial. He posed questions about how Detective Jill McTeague had led the inquiry, saying she had covered up evidence and believed she was not quite equal to being in charge of her first murder inquiry. D.I. McTeague refuted these claims, saying that she and her officers had bent over backwards to alert the defence to all the available evidence, but to no avail, and Smith walked free. His marriage was over after his wife had left him, so Smith went back to live quietly with his parents in south-west London after his acquittal. One Daily Mirror journalist, close to detectives on the inquiry, was appalled at this seeming miscarriage of justice and decided to doorstep Smith at his home. She described her experiences in her blog, saying, His little old mum opened the door, and behind her, out of the shadows, emerged Smith. I found it slightly unreal that one of Britain's most dangerous killers was staring me in the face. I gulped and put it straight to Smith. You raped and murdered Sarah Crump, didn't you? I didn't touch her, he mumbled, in his slow, deep voice, avoiding my gaze. You know you did, I continued. The jury didn't hear about your past. You're a violent rapist, aren't you? I've had problems with women in the past, he stuttered. 
they make things up about me. Questioning Smith was a strange experience. This powerful killer, a martial arts expert cunning and calculating, was unquestionably a mummy's boy. His demeanour, rather like the nickname Honey Monster, which had stuck since childhood, suggested he was nothing more than a misunderstood misfit. That was his trick. Ridiculously, I tried to reason with him. You won't go near women again, will you? No, they're bad news, he said, then vowed, I won't touch a girl ever again. For a second, I even thought he meant it. His wrinkly mum, who believed his innocence, had probably made the same pointless remarks herself. I returned to the office of the Sunday newspaper where I worked and I wrote about Smith. I started the story, remember this face, it belongs to one of the most violent rapists in Britain. But despite his face being all over the papers, after a while, Smith's life returned to normal. As well as lorry driving for a company near Heathrow Airport by day, he ran an escort agency hiring sex workers to buyers of sex for £250 a time and taking a cut of their earnings. Smith was obsessed by sex and the sex industry. He also continued to be a prolific buyer of sex, where he could indulge his liking for violent and surgical sex. Smith was also a confirmed voyeur. He often spent his spare time at the Royal Horticultural Society's garden at Wisley, Surrey, south of London. Although a beautiful spot, this isolated area is well known after dark for being frequented by couples and it's also a well-known dogging site where people can indulge their enjoyment of being watched by strangers or even inviting them to join in their activities. Hey, if it works for you, that's all good with me. Personally, I just think that rather than erotic, I would just find it terrifying. In research for this episode... I've looked a bit at the rules that govern this pastime, just for research purposes, obviously. But I'm a little bit confused by the rules of the game. All this flashing of interior lights, headlights, and what it all means. Smith was also involved in the swinging scene, as well as attending regular organised sex parties across the UK. As I said, he was very interested in sex. I think you can say he was obsessed. But Smith wasn't doing anything illegal and he had nothing more to do with the police, so he faded from the public's attention. Then five years later, on the 25th of April 1998, a murder inquiry was launched after a young woman's blood-covered clothes were found dumped in an alley in Hanworth, West London, only a mile from Smith's home. As Smith was a convicted rapist, a trawl of Scotland Yard's database of sex offenders who lived close to the scene where the clothes were found, came up with his name. Tests showed his fingerprints on the victim's handbag and that his blood matched that on the victim's t-shirt, trousers, underwear and black PVC coat. The body was found close to Wisley, where Smith had spent so much time. The similarities with the murder of Sarah Crump were immediately very clear to police. The woman's body was so badly decomposed a pathologist could not be certain of the cause of death, but the familiar mutilation of parts of her body made it clear that foul play was responsible. The victim was named as 21-year-old Amanda Walker. A slightly built lady, she only weighed six stone, and a mother of a two-year-old son from Leeds. 
Amanda had left her two-year-old son, Macaulay, in the Rawcliffe area of Leeds with her father. Friends had given her a lift to London, but as they approached Paddington Station, she jumped out of the car. It appeared that she was earning extra money as a sex worker in the red-light district of Sussex Gardens, near London's Paddington Station. You may recall this is the same red-light district used by the transsexual sex worker Jackie McAuliffe in the BBC Fly on the Wall documentary, Paddington Green, a few years ago. The police had arrested Amanda for soliciting on the night of the 24th of April and she was taken to Harrow Road Police Station. But keen to continue to make the most of the earning potential while she was in London, after she was released at midnight, she headed back to Sussex Gardens. The last sighting of her alive was asking for directions to get back to the red light district. When she got back there, the next buyer of sex services who approached her was the burly figure of David Smith. That night, he'd been in north-east London, in Ilford. He'd been to a fetish party for adults with an interest in the sadomasochistic lifestyle, with dungeons, whips and every other tool needed to ensure that that group had a great time. After paying the £110 to enter, he spent over an hour with a red-haired lady in the steam room. Even though it was a sex party and the pair were almost naked, there was no sexual contact between them. The woman later told police that she was terrified after Smith had told her that he could kill a person in seconds. He hurt her by gripping her hand and then he boasted that he did not feel pain himself. When he left... He admitted feeling randy and he drove off to trawl the streets to find a sex worker and the person that he found was Amanda Walker. Just for a minute, let's just think about her last living moments. They must have been more frightening than anything we could imagine in our darkest nightmares. He bound her hands together and he mummified her slender body in cling film before having sex with her and then stabbing her to death stuffing leaves in her mouth to stop her screaming in terror and pain. But Amanda desperately and bravely put up a fight for her life and she managed to split his lip, leading his blood to drip on her bra and it was this blood on her clothes that led the police directly to David Smith. When questioned, Smith admitted paying Amanda for sex but he denied killing her. However, with the forensic evidence and the fact that Amanda's body had been mutilated in an almost identical way to the body of Sarah Crump, the police were sure that this time they had their man. As we've heard so often on this podcast, on remand, the prisoners can't stop confiding in their fellow inmates, and Smith too admitted killing Amanda to another prisoner. While waiting trial for Amanda's murder, Smith boasted of murdering her to his cellmate Stephen Williams. It was his undoing for Williams although himself a sex offender, was utterly appalled by what he had heard and he immediately told police. Smith told Williams that he'd found Amanda, wrapped her in polythene and cut her with a knife, I quote, downstairs, before and after having sex with her. Smith, who knew the points of the body to put pressure on to inflict pain and kill, said he put his hand on her nose and mouth and that was when she had died. This time at court, even a clever defence counsel couldn't save him this time. Six years after being acquitted of the murder of Sarah Crump, David Smith, now 43, was convicted at the Old Bailey of murdering Amanda Walker. 
After the jury returned their verdict, the Recorder of London, Judge Michael Hyam, sentenced him to life in prison and told Smith, You've been found guilty on very strong evidence of a brutal murder. Anyone who has heard what you did to the unfortunate young woman must have been horrified and revolted. It is evident that you killed her to satisfy your perverted sexual obsession. He said that Smith had shown no pity or remorse and had even boasted of the crime to another prisoner while on remand. The judge told him, you are extremely dangerous to women and clearly will remain so. Amanda's parents didn't attend the trial. I think I can understand why, hearing that level of detail. But Sarah Crump's sister was in court to see Smith sentenced. Sarah's mum, Pat Rhodes, issued a statement in which she said she was relieved that Smith had finally been jailed. She said, Nothing will bring Sarah back, we know that. But we feel that there has been unfinished business while Smith has been free. I truly believe Smith to be guilty of the murder of my daughter Sarah and I said at the trial that he would kill again. She also sent her condolences to Amanda Walker's family and friends. A detective involved in the investigation said, We believe that Smith is one of the most dangerous sadomasochistic sex killers of the century. If we hadn't put him away now, there is no doubt he would have gone on to kill and to kill again. As far as we are concerned, he got away with it at least once. There is no question in our minds that he did kill Sarah Crump. Cold case teams took a cast of Smith's footprints, a whopping size 14, hoping it could lead them to convict him of other unsolved murders. One said, Smith was a lorry driver travelling up and down the country. We believe he was a serial killer and are going back in time to bring closure for victims' families. In particular, it is strongly suggested that Smith was responsible for the death of two other sex workers. The mutilated bodies of Maria Christina Requina and Linda Donaldson were found a little over a mile apart in Loughton, near Warrington, close to Manchester in the northwest of England. Although the killings were separated by two years, police believe that they're linked because of the proximity of where the pair were discovered and the way in which they were killed. The two women worked in red light districts at either end of the East Lancashire Road and they were both dumped roughly halfway along the dual carriageway in rural backwaters. Maria, who worked the streets in Manchester, was found at the Pennington Flash Country Park on the 6th of January 1991. The 26-year-old's body had been cut up with power tools and placed in five bin bags before being thrown into the lake. Two youngsters found the bags one containing her head, while fishing at the flash, close to Stag Lane, Loughton. The body of Linda Donaldson, a sex worker from Liverpool, was found mutilated and naked in a field off Winwick Lane, Loughton, on October 18th, 1988. No charges have yet to be brought against David Smith for those two crimes or any other. I'm looking forward to hearing the thoughts of Chris Clark about the other crimes of David Smith, if you don't know Chris, he's really switched on about UK true crime and is an ex-police investigator with a particular interest in cold cases. He's very active on this podcast Facebook group. I suggest you follow him there or take a look at his Facebook page, The Armchair Detective. Smith was sent to Wakefield Prison with many other high-profile prisoners, one of which was Howard Shipman, and the two knew each other. 
After serial killer Shipman hung himself, as he couldn't face spending the rest of his time behind bars, David Smith was one of those called to the inquest for evidence. It transpired that most nights in jail, Smith had been playing cards with Shipman and two other monsters. One of whom was John Taylor. Remember this case? Taylor, a formal parcel delivery worker, was given two life sentences for the kidnap and murder of 16-year-old Leanne Tiernan. The 46-year-old, described as a dangerous sexual sadist, abducted Leanne in Bramley, Leeds in 2000. He strangled her at his home and dumped her body in woods near Otley up to nine months later. Police think he could have kept the teenager's body in a fridge or a freezer. The other member of this bizarre card school was Shipman's closest friend, Graham Shepherd, who was jailed for life in 1999 at Teesside Crown Court for attacking a 15-year-old boy and his 7-year-old sister. If you don't recall this case, he actually tied up his victims, the children of a woman he met via a Lonely Hearts column, and forced them to have sex. I don't know about you, but I can only imagine the sort of conversations that these people must have had between hands at their card school. Smith is also a regular at Church of England sessions in Wakefield Jail. An insider revealed Smith found God just after he was quizzed about other potential murders. He would lumber up to the Sunday service and try to sit next to the other lags. But he is so huge he just ended up pushing them off the pew. In the end, he was given his own one near the front and told not to move. He takes an active part, singing hymns and joining in all the prayers. Smith is quite devout now and he regularly reads the Bible in his cell. It's as though he wants to make peace with God. It's a bit late for that, isn't it? Don't you think? So what do you make of what we've heard today? Our thoughts, of course, are with the friends and families of Amanda Walker and Sarah Crump, who had the misfortune to cross paths with David Smith. Even just researching this case, I've woken in the night thinking about the terror of their deaths, the sheer terror. Both women must just have been so frightened when they realised what was about to happen to them. Sarah was moonlighting in sex work to earn extra money and Amanda was desperately trying to quit the work when she was murdered. Who knows what both could have achieved if their lives hadn't been cut so desperately short. I think David Smith is possibly the most genuinely frightening character I've covered on this podcast and that's saying something isn't it? A violent sexual predator with a fetish for surgical procedure. It doesn't get much worse than that. How he walked free from court after murdering Sarah Crump is hard to understand. And once more, I'm staggered by the actions of his defence counsel. I appreciate they're paid to get the best result for their client, but they must have known that Smith was guilty. And then they played their part in freeing Smith, so he was able to walk the streets, devastating the lives of more innocent women. I wonder if the counsel himself and those who worked on the case at his company feel any guilt around later events. I'd imagine not. I read a really interesting article in the Independent newspaper from 2010 when researching today's case. It focused on the number of unsolved sex worker cases over the previous two decades. The authors, Nina Lacani and Emily Dugan, argue that research into the large number of unsolved deaths of sex workers reveals widespread regional variations in the way the cases are investigated. 
it's argued that some police forces, the media and the public become interested only where there is a hint of some sensational element, a serial killer, say, to these crimes. The deaths of individual women, they argue, often fail to capture public attention or sympathy, reflecting the negative attitudes many people still hold towards women who sell sex for a living. I so struggle with this backward thinking, don't you? I just don't understand how people can still have these attitudes. And sex workers working in the streets are the most vulnerable. While only one in four sex workers are on the streets now, they made up three quarters of the murder victims due to this vulnerability. Hilary Cannell, author of Violence and Sex Work in Britain, argues that it's only women living at the very edges of society, desperately trying to support themselves, their children, a violent pimp, and often an addiction who are left working the streets. There are also a grown number of asylum seekers and refugees, with no access to public funds and little, if any, social support, who work there to buy their necessities. For some, this is as basic as food and water, and for others, any array of substances for their addiction. Hillary continues, Attitudes vary hugely across police regions, and the action taken by police to protect or pursue sex workers is often dependent on key individuals. There are some areas where police still shrug their shoulders when there is violence against sex workers, but other areas are doing much better. However, the police, the media and society are only really interested and outraged when there is a series of murders. Individual crimes tend to get overlooked. I could provide a hundred quotes here from senior police officers refuting the above, but really, I don't quite believe what they'd say. Do you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to our Facebook group to discuss this case and any other aspect of UK True Crime. You'll be made very welcome. If you'd like to support the show and help me to continue to produce weekly episodes, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash UK True Crime. There you can listen to 11 full-length bonus episodes with number 12 coming soon, along with other exclusive content. So that's all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, cheerio and remember, stay classy.